This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, November 26, 2015. I'm Caleb Brown. Give thanks today that Americans did away with the so-called general warrant, replacing that relic of the past with the Fourth Amendment's warrant requirements that include details about why and where a person or property may be searched or seized. But the general warrant threatens to make a big comeback. Laura Donahue, a professor of law at Georgetown Law, spoke at the Cato Institute's conference on surveillance in October. What is a general warrant? A general warrant is a document that's issued by a court or the executive branch that gives officials the broad authority to search for and to seize private documents without any prior specific evidence of wrongdoing. It does not specify with any particularity the person or place to be searched or the papers or records to be seized. It's not supported by oath or affirmation of any wrongdoing. It amounts to a fishing expedition to try to find evidence of illegal activity. For centuries prior to the American founding, English jurists and legal scholars rejected general warrants as the worst exercise of tyrannical power. A brief look at the history helps to illustrate why these recent intelligence programs are an anathema to the principles that underlie the United States Constitution. During the reign of Charles I, Sir Edward Cook argued in Parliament against the use of general warrants for even for threats to the realm. If such instruments be used per mandatum domini regis or for matters of state, he thundered, then we are gone and we are in a worse, worse case than ever. If we agree for matters of state, we shall leave Magna Carta and other statutes and make them fruitless and do what our ancestors will never do. The 1628 Petition of Right went on to condemn general warrants. Cook returned to his arguments in the third part of the Institutes of the Laws of England. To issue general warrants, he wrote, is against Magna Carta. Preventing their use lay at the heart of the rule of law. Nec super iam ibimus, nec super iam midimus, nisi per legale judicium parium forum, well per legem terre. Neither will we pass upon him or condemn him, but by the lawful judgment of his peers or by the law of the land. Cook's rejection of general warrants reflected growing frustration at the Crown's use of general warrants during the time. Cook's institutes themselves fell subject to the general warrants that he condemned. As he was dying on his deathbed, Charles I ordered that his institutes be seized, that all of his trunks be seized and brought in front of him. Uh, Charles I himself broke open the trunks when they arrived, but his actions were too late to stem the tide. His institutes went on to be published, and legal scholars and jurists began cementing Cook's thoughts into other legal treatises of the time. In 1678, Sir Matthew Hale, most famous for his 1639 History of the Common Law of England, he noted in his first volume of the Pleas of the Crown, a general warrant to search for felons or stolen goods not good. Two years later, Parliament directed publication of his manuscript. When Historia Practicum Coronae, or History of the Pleas of the Crown, finally appeared in 1736, it became enormously influential. In it, Hale stated a general warrant to search in all suspected places is not good, but only to search in such suspected places, particular places, where the party assigns before the justice his suspicion and the probable cause whereof, for these warrants are judicial acts and must be granted upon an examination of the fact. Hill continued, therefore, I take those general warrants dormant, which Uh, which are made many times before any felony committed are not justifiable, for it makes a party in effect the judge and therefore searches made by pretense of general warrants 
Give no more power to the officer or party than that what they may do by law without them. So for centuries, English courts looked to these treatises and rejected the concept of a general warrant. It was, for instance, to Hale that Lord Mansfield appealed in a case later brought over the Crown's efforts to prevent publication of the political weekly known as North Britain, North Britain number 45. In 1762, John Wilkes had founded the North Britain uh, in opposition to the pro-government political weekly Britain, uh, taking great delight thereafter in lampooning the Crown generally and George III's favorite, um, John Stuart, the third, era, third Earl of Butte in particular. When Butte entered into negotiations with the French, bringing the Seven Years' War to conclusion, the North Britain and others attacked the terms of peace. Wilkes, uh, shown here in somewhat less than flattering terms, um, he lamented that the French king, by a stroke of his pen, has regained what all the power of that nation and her allies could never have recovered. While political hostility forced Butte's resignation, uh, the North Britain continued to attack when George Grenville assumed the office of prime minister and sanctioned the Treaty of Paris. Wilkes went on to condemning the British government for having saved England from the certain ruin of success. Uh, he lamented seeing the crown sunk even to prostitution. This time, he went too far. Three days after publication uh, of this political weekly, Lord Halifax signed a warrant authorizing the king's messengers to make strict and diligent search for the authors, printers, and publishers of the seditious libel entitled the North Britain, and to apprehend and seize them together with their papers to bring them in safe custody before the crown to be examined. In the Malay that followed, dozens of cases challenged general warrants. In Wilkes versus Wood, uh, Wilkes's lawyer, John Glynn, argued that more was at stake than the simple execution of one warrant against one person. At stake was the right of all Englishmen. In vain has our house been declared by the law, our asylum, and our defense, if it's capable of being entered upon any frivolous or no pretense at all by a secretary of state. The seizing of Wilkes's papers represented the worst defense against the crown's subjects. For other offenses, acknowledgment might make amends. But for the promulgation of our most private concerns, affairs of the most secret, personal nature, no reparation whatever could be made. English law, counsel argued, never admits of a general search warrant. Beyond the privacy invasion, the risk accompanied the proposition that some papers, innocent in themselves, might might be combined with the slightest alteration to be converted to criminal action. After only a half hour of deliberation, the jury returned a verdict for Wilkes, awarding an astonishing 1,000 pounds in damages. Two days later, the St. James Chronicle reflected, by this important decision, every Englishman has a satisfaction of seeing that his home is his castle. Recall that in 1604, Sir Edward Cook had famously stated in Semaine's case, the house of everyone is to him as his castle and fortress, as well as his defense against injury and violence, as for his repose. In that case, Cook recognized that there were limits on the crown's ability to intrude within the home in the private homes of the king's subjects. 24 years later, he incorporated that principle into his institutes, for a man's house is his castle at Domesuasique, at Tusticium Refugium, and each man's home is his safest refuge. This is the language to which the St. James Chronicle referred in its assessment of the importance of Wilkes and Wood. 
Two years after that case, Lord Chief Justice Mansfield in the Court of the King's Bench similarly found himself confronted by the execution of the North Britain warrant, the general warrant. In this case, as it was executed against the printer, Dryden Leach. Like Glynn, who was John Wilkes's counsel, Dunning, who was uh, Leach's counsel, argued that the generality of the warrant was precisely what made it invalid. To ransack private studies in order to search for evidence and even without a previous search, sorry, charge on oath is contrary to natural justice as well as to the liberty of the subject. He concluded to search a man's private papers ad libitum and even without accusation is an infringement of the natural rights of mankind. Lord Mansfield presiding over the case agreed. He noted that Hale and others hold such an uncertain warrant void. There is no case or book to the contrary, and the judgment stood. These were hardly the only cases to condemn general warrants in Antic versus Carrington. Chief Justice Charles Pratt contemplated an action in trespass against the Crown for execution of a general warrant. Pratt ruled against the government, observing that the great end for which men enter into society is to secure their property. Under English law, every invasion of private property be it ever so minute, is a trespass. By this, he did not just mean a physical trespass of the home. He went on to say specifically, papers are the owner's goods and chattels. They are his dearest property, and far from enduring a seizure, they will hardly bear an inspection. By 1766, members of the House of Commons referred to the writs in even more derisive terms. A general warrant, they said on the floor, is such a piece of nonsense as deserves not to be spoken of, being no warrant at all. Two years later, William Blackstone, in his commentaries on the laws of England, underscored the distinction between specific and general warrants. The latter were illegal and void for their uncertainty, for it is the duty of the magistrate and ought not to be left to the officer to judge the ground of suspicion. So by the time of the American founding, according to English legal treatises and case law, general warrants were not to be tolerated, even as Cook noted, for reason of state, which is close to what we now understand as national security. There was no circumstance under which general warrants would be allowed. Why? Well, because general warrants violated Magna Carta. They undermined the rule of law. Criminal procedural protections would mean nothing if they could be simply swept aside at the will of the king. Even specific warrants would only be tolerated if they carried sufficient particularity, naming the person, the suspected crime, evidence for the suspicion, under oath, and the particular place to be searched. The decision of determining whom to search should not be left to the executive or to the crown. Hale explained it transferred too much power to the crown. So when the American colonists left England, they expected that their rights as Englishmen would travel with them. But in the New World, general warrants again began proliferating, this time in the form of writs of assistance. A writ of assistance is a document that provides a customs agent and later naval officers with the authority to search ships and warehouses, private dwellings, to uncover goods that had failed to be properly accounted for through customs. Any person presented with the paper had to assist the crown. That's why they're known as writs of assistance. So in the context of the French and the Indian War, the British governors in the New World started increasingly using writs of assistance to try to stop illegal trade, first with the French Indies and then with French Canada. When George II died, uh, the crown had only six months to renew these writs of assistance. This gave merchants an opportunity to challenge their legality. 
They chose one of the leading lawyers of the time, James Otis Jr., who resigned his position as Deputy Advocate General of the Massachusetts Vice Admiralty Court to take the case. His oration in Paxton's case, named after one of the customs agents who originally was given a writ of assistance, it remains one of the most famous in American history. More than 50 years after the event, John Adams, our second president, who was there at the time, reported, Otis was a flame of fire. His argument breathed into this nation the breath of life. He continued, every man of an immense crowded audience appeared to me ready to go away as I did, ready to take up arms against writs of assistance. Professor A.J. Languth has reflected on this time. James Otis stood up to speak, and something profound changed in America. Otis attacked the idea that the crown should have the authority to enter and search the private papers of British subjects. I will to my dying day oppose with all the powers and faculties God has given me, all such instruments of slavery on the one hand and villainy on the other, as this writ of assistance is. It represented the worst instrument of arbitrary power, the most destructive of English liberty and the fundamental principles of the Constitution that ever was found in an English law book. Harkening back to Charles I and James I, he noted that it was this type of despotic power that had cost one king of England his head and another his throne. See, every person carrying this warrant had the potential to be a tyrant, and not just through his behavior, but through behavior backed by law. Individuals could use the writ to take revenge on others or to target political opponents, and those who were forced to comply had their rights compromised as well. At base were concerns about the sanctity of the home and the importance of privacy and ensuring security. One of the most essential branches of English liberty, Otis noted, is the freedom of one's house. A man's house is his castle, and whilst he is quiet, he is well guarded as a prince in his castle. A writ of assistance, if it should be declared legal, would totally annihilate this privilege. Our second president later reflected, then and there was the first scene of the first act of opposition to the arbitrary claims of Great Britain. Then and there, the child independence was born. Americans were eager to ensure that the new governments did not have the right to issue a general warrant. And so in May of 1776, the Fifth Virginia Convention assembled a veritable pantheon of the American Republic. Patrick Henry, George Washington, Edmund Pendleton, George Mason, George Wyeth, Richard Henry Lee, Thomas Jefferson, and others. To Mason, of course, fell the responsibility of drafting the Virginia Declaration of Rights. And in that document, Mason laid out the natural rights of man. He drew from Locke and Montesquieu, English history, colonial experience, and he declared that individuals hold certain rights which limit the power of government. Amongst these was the right to be free of general warrants. The Virginia Declaration of Rights, Article 14, states that general warrants, whereby any officer or messenger may be commanded to search suspected places without evidence of a fact committed or to seize any person or persons not named or whose offense is not particularly described and supported by evidence are grievous and ought not to be granted. The right against promiscuous search and seizure lay at the heart of the founding. Along with the principle of consent, the right to a jury trial, it freed the colonists from tyrannical rule. Virginia was not alone in its condemnation of, Virginia, of general warrants. 
In July of 1776, Benjamin Franklin, George Bryan, James Cannon, Thomas Paine, and others drafted a new constitution for the state of Pennsylvania. It established security from searches and seizures as a right held by the people. Specifically, it read, the people shall be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and possessions from unreasonable searches and seizures and no warrant to search any place or seize any person or things shall issue without describing them as nearly as may be nor without probable cause supported by oath or affirmation subscribed to by affiant. By using the word unreasonable, Pennsylvania meant something different than what is commonly attributed today to the Fourth Amendment. Unreasonable in the 18th century meant against reason, which translated into against the reason of the common law. The common law would not admit of general warrants. And so an unreasonable warrant was a general warrant. Anything that violated the common law was illegal, and it was against the common law to allow for general warrants. Delaware, Maryland, North Carolina, other states followed suit. These early state constitutions transformed a colonial grievance about the Crown's violation of their rights due as Englishmen into a written guarantee of a constitutional right. Accordingly, when the founders rewrote the Articles of Confederation into the US Constitution, state after state demanded that a new clause be added to a Bill of Rights outlawing the use of general warrants. The liveliest and most intense exchanges took place, perhaps unsurprisingly, in Virginia. Patrick Henry was this charismatic former governor. He led the attack. Henry worried that the new constitution imperiled Americans' rights and privileges, as well as the sovereignty of state governments. He demanded that a Bill of Rights be added to ensure the protection of individual liberties. I feel myself distressed because the necessity of securing our personal rights seems not to have pervaded the minds of men, for many other valuable things are omitted. For instance, general warrants by which an officer may search suspected places without evidence of the commission of a fact or seize any person without evidence of his crime. The problem was that property could be taken in the most arbitrary manner, he put it, without any evidence or reason. Everything considered sacred could be ransacked and searched by the strong hand of power. So the Virginia delegates went on to propose in the proposed Bill of Rights a protection against unreasonable or unconstitutional against the reason of the common law general warrants, and by eliminating them. Its proposed measure stated that every freeman has the right to be secure from all unreasonable searches and seizures of his person, going on to propose the outlawing of general warrants. The debates in New York similarly highlighted the absence of a measure addressing general warrants. For Rhode Island, it was only with the understanding that the Constitution would be amended to take account of the prohibition of general warrants that they would ratify the document. In Maryland, anti-federalists warned that under the new constitution, excise officers would have the power to enter your home at any time of day or night. And if you refuse them entrance, they can, under pretense of searching for excisable goods, break open your doors, chests, trunks, desks, boxes, and rummage your house from bottom to top. And so Maryland also proposed that a Bill of Rights prohibit general warrants, even as it laid out the particulars that would have to be met for even a particular warrant to be declared constitutional. In Massachusetts, Pennsylvania, North Carolina, similar conversations took place prompting Madison, when entrusted with the drafting of the Bill of Rights, to vow to protect the rights of conscience, the freedom of the press, trial by jury, and security 
against general warrants. And thus we get to the Fourth Amendment. It establishes the right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures. It shall not be violated and no warrants shall issue, but upon probable cause supported by oath or affirmation and particularly describing the place to be searched and persons or things to be seen, seized. So the first part of this clause establishes the right against general warrant. And the second part introduces further specifics that have to be met even for specific warrants to be valid. With that history in mind, one could perhaps be forgiven for being somewhat surprised on June 6, 2013, when The Guardian announced that the United States was collecting the phone records of millions of Americans. The order required Verizon to turn over all call detail records of telephony metadata created by Verizon for communications between the United States and abroad or wholly within the United States, including local telephone calls. Issued by the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, the order did not name any particular individual suspected of wrongdoing. It did not specify a crime. There was no oath or affirmation. The order did not indicate a particular place to be searched. Indeed, it did not appear to be tailored in any way whatsoever. Now, some people would contend that the information being collected was not private, and thus it did not deserve the protections of the Fourth Amendment. That statement does not survive scrutiny. The order demanded that documents detailing citizens' friendships, private conversations, social networks, and relationships, as well as their location, as revealed from cell phone trunk identifier information, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, for months at a time, be turned over to the government. Now, it's important to note here that a significant amount of personal information is entailed in telephony metadata. A recent study by computer scientists at Stanford University, for instance, looked at 546 people over three months' time. They looked at the numbers dialed, the patterns in the call, and they were able to ascertain highly sensitive personal information. One participant uh, spoke at length with cardiologists at a medical center for a short time with a medical laboratory and then received calls from a pharmacy and then telephoned a home reporting hotline for a medical device that's used to monitor cardiac arrhythmia. Another participant called a firearms store specializing in AR-15 semi-automatic rifles before telephoning customer service for a manufacturer that produces an AR-15 line. A third participant called a home improvement store, a locksmith, a hydroponics dealer, and a head shop. They did volunteer for this study, I should add. A fourth person telephoned her sister and spoke to her at length. Two days later, she called Planned Parenthood. A fortnight later, she telephoned the clinic a few times. One month later, she called it a final time. The metadata provided insight into the participants' heart conditions, gun purchases, cannabis cultivation, and decision to have an abortion. And it was a small sample over a short period of a limited number of calls. The Verizon order, it turned out, had been in place for nearly a decade, and it carried the imprimatur of the courts. It was a judicial writ, which demanded that anyone served with it comply. And it was, used to being it was being used to find evidence of criminal activity. The types of issues at stake are duplicative of the concerns at the founding. The same privacy interests that we have today were there then. Access to our family and friends, access to our intimate relationships, the right to solitude, the ability to question the world and our role in it, to figure out who we are and who we want to be, the freedom to set intimacy in our relationships and diversity in our relationships, democratic deliberation, the marketplace of ideas, 
The same potential harms attach today as they did at the founding. The harm of overturning the age-old precept of guilty until proven innocent. Instead, everybody is potentially guilty until they're later proven innocent. Um, should be innocent until proven guilty is the, is the way it ought to be. Um, the idea that you can target social, political, and economic opponents. You can use it for blackmail. You can override our structural protections as well as our federalist protections. I'll just conclude briefly uh, now. One argument that's offered now is, well, we're sorted. We've done away with the 215 program, so what is there really to worry about? This argument is a red herring. The advent of big data, the potential of new analytical tools paired with ways in which technology has catapulted our world forward make this one of the most pressing questions of our time. Telephony metadata collection under 215 is far from the only game in town. It's from Stellar Wind, from the internet metadata collection under the pen register trap and, tra trap and trace provisions, the other 711 metadata orders that we still have not seen under Section 215. Section 702 in the collection of information not just to or from, but anything about suspected targets or words or, I guess, identifiers associated with the targets. Under Executive Order 12333, we now know about mystic communications to and from countries, muscular email address books, optic nerve, webcam images, chat sessions. From Dishfire, we have text messages and geolocational data is being collected at a shocking rate. The basic idea here is that by collecting everything, tagging it, and storing it, information can be searched to find evidence of illegal behavior. These programs, we're told, allow the government greater insight into the threats faced by our country. That statement is undoubtedly true. It is also true that the collection of this information allows the government incredible insight into our daily private lives. Leaked documents suggest that the NSA is scanning communications that travel across the backbone of the internet and intercepting data between servers. It's then fed into a massive database where the NSA queries it 20 million times per month. Even when data is collected from foreign country targeting or foreign individuals or foreign entities, the NSA may use US person identifiers to query the database. In short, large-scale mass collection looks a lot like what the founders were trying to avoid by preventing the government from using promiscuous search authorities. It is precisely what Otis protested, and it gave birth to the Fourth Amendment. Persistent collection of citizens' private information with the purpose of finding evidence of wrongdoing without oath or affirmation or probable cause and without particularly describing the person or places to be searched or persons or things to be seized flies in the face of our constitutional doctrine and is on its face unconstitutional. Laura Donahue is a professor of law at Georgetown Law. She spoke at the Cato Institute's conference on surveillance in October. Watch the full event or subscribe to our podcasts at cato.org.